0: David Korn is a veteran Washington journalist and political commentator. He is the Washington Bureau chief for Mother Jones magazine and an analyst for MSNBC. He is also the author or co-author of four New York Times bestsellers, including the number one bestseller, Russian Roulette, Showdown and Hubris, and the author of the novel Deep Background. His new book, American Psychosis, a historical investigation of how the Republican Party went crazy, argues that since the 1950s, the GOP has encouraged and exploited extremism to gain power.
1: Everything you are about to see actually happened.
0: Eight hours a day for 36 days, a special Senate subcommittee held televised hearings known as the Army-McCarthy hearings the spring of 1954. Let us not assassinate this bad person, Senator, but you have done enough. Have first. you no
1: sense of decency, sir? At long last, have you left no sense of decency? The media's got this 100% wrong, right? This is not modern versus uh, Tea Party. The Tea Party has taken over the entire Republican Party. Don't you agree? My Republicans do not respect the Constitution. They do not believe in the rule of law. They do not recognize the will of the people. They refuse to accept the results of a free election. And they're working right now, as I speak, in state after state, to give power to decide elections in America to partisans and cronies. Hi, I'm David Corn, author of American Psychosis, a historical investigation of how the Republican Party went crazy. Sorry, not sorry.
0: David, thank you so, so very much for being here with us. Before we get started, please just remind our listeners a bit about the work that you do.
1: I am the Washington Bureau Chief of Mother Jones Magazine, which is a progressive leaning magazine that does a lot of investigative reporting, it's been around since 1974. I've been around a little bit longer than that, working for The Nation magazine and other places. I'm also an MSNBC analyst, so you might see me on TV talking about many things. I've written a number of books, and most recently, that book is American Psychosis, which is a history of the Republican Party's relationship with far-right extremism. It didn't just start with Donald Trump. It goes back decades.
0: Before we we get into the book, I just want to touch on the fact that Mother Jones has been one of the few periodicals of serious journalism from the left that has basically endured for nearly 50 years. What do you think makes it so durable?
1: Well, we're not propagandists. What we do is reporting and often enterprise and investigative reporting. That's what we're best known for, going back to the early days When the magazine exposed the problem with the Pintos exploding gas tanks to the story that I did a few years ago, I guess it's a decade now, on revealing the 47% tape with Mitt Romney. We try to serve the truth by serving up the truth. So in that way, we're not just putting out hot takes or saying this should happen or that should happen or decrying this or that or the other thing. We're actually in the trenches reporting out stories that we think are highly, significantly important for us to deal with the problems we have at hand.
0: I want to ask you about Glenn Greenwald because I think it's just emblematic of the title and the problem. Glenn was a contributor to Mother Jones. He wrote articles about the legal system favoring the 1% and how the Bush administration weaponized fear for the magazine. And of course, he is now a hero of the Trump cult and appears on Tucker Carlson and the other one, Laura Ingraham's show. What happened to him in particular?
1: I spent a lot of time trying not to think about Glenn. The real bottom line is, I don't know. He claims to be concerned about the left being censorious and the corporate media clamping down on opinion. And therefore, he has somehow made common cause with Tucker Carlson, who promotes racism and fascism, and Laura Ingram and Fox News, which is out there defending the attackers of democracy, the proponents of the big lie. So I don't get it. I've never been, he's not a friend. He's never been a friend. He's never been really even a, a colleague. I've never worked with him. I know people who have now given up trying to understand. They are dismayed. He was kicked off a board of a liberal foundation. He was chased out of The Intercept, pretty left but good you know, media organization. And so I don't get it. If he thinks the problem in the world is cancel culture, whatever that might be, as opposed to trying to overthrow democracy? I can't don't know where that's coming from. He was wrong on the Ukraine invasion, he was wrong on the Russian attack on the 2016 election.
0: Okay, we've given him enough time. He's just wrong. It's just so interesting to me, you know, and I think people of a certain age like my age when my generation When most of us consider the extremism in the center of the GOP, we thought or we think back to Newt Gingrich and the contract with America in the 1990s as its origin. But you argue it goes back much further than that. Can you just unpack that a little bit for me?
1: Well, I'll tell you a story first. A little over a year ago, I was thinking about how the Republican Party has become so intertwined with extremism in the Trump years that, of course, led to January 6th. And we see it now with Marjorie Taylor Greene and all the conferences, the white nationalists. And I was just interested in the historical relationship between the party and far-right fanaticism. And I said, someone must have written a book on this. And I went looking for a book on this subject. And while I found good histories of the Republican Party from the days of Lincoln until today, I found nothing that focused on this aspect of the story. And, you know, this saying, be the change you want to be. For authors, it's write the book you want to read. So I started researching this and I really sort of pick up the story in the late 40s, 1950s, when you had McCarthyism, which was a conspiracy theory. Joe McCarthy literally accused the Democratic administration and the Secretary of Defense of the day, George C. Marshall, of running a cabal, a plot to literally destroy America. Purposefully I think we should keep in mind when we refer to Democrats, when we refer to the administration, that there are definitely two groups of Democrats as of today. Number one, there are the
0: millions of loyal Americans who have voted the Democrat ticket.
1: Individuals who are just as loyal, who hate communism just as much, and love America just as much as the average Republican. That's one group. On the other hand, there is that
0: small, closely lit group of administration Democrats
1: who are now the complete prisoners and under the complete domination of the bureaucratic, communistic Frankenstein, which they themselves have created. So the elites and the Truman administration could hand it over to the Soviet Union. Not that they were doing things that were wrong. They weren't being tough enough on Moscow. They had misguided policies. They were purposefully trying to destroy America from within to hand it over to the Soviet Union. And this is like QAnon without the baby eating, without the sex trafficking. And McCarthy convinced millions of Americans that this was reality. The Republican Party embraced him. Dwight Eisenhower campaigned with him, even though he knew He was a scoundrel and hated him privately. The party saw that this was winning them elections and was drawing Catholic voters who were mainly Democratic up to that point into the Republican Party fold. And it was the Republican Party taking advantage of a tremendous amount of unease in the country because of the rise of the Cold War, the advent of nuclear terror. And they just went to town with this and helped them win elections. It helped bring in new voters, millions of people, and the leaders of the party knew this was not true. Eventually, McCarthy was denounced by half of the Republican senators, not all the Republican senators. But McCarthyism, the notion that the Democrats were basically in bed with the commies, with the Reds, continued on. And from that point on in time, you can draw a straight line from then until the era of Donald Trump with examples of the Republican Party the highest ranks of the Republican Party, presidential candidates and presidents, making deals with the devil, getting in bed, encouraging and exploiting extremism, which can include bigotry, racism, paranoia, conspiracy theory, tribalism, in order to win elections.
0: That's really depressing.
1: But it isn't. I'll tell you why. Because I think a lot of people believe that Trump is something new. This is an unforeseen challenge and problem for the nation. And therefore, what do we do about this? And I think also some are misguided in believing if you just get rid of Trump. I think both of those assumptions are false. And what we see in the past is that there's been the rise of extremism and the Republican Party exploiting it. And sometimes it's worked and sometimes it hasn't. Barry Goldwater basically protected the John Birch Society in the early 60s, which was McCarthyism and steroids. It was that era's version of QAnon craziness, because he wanted their votes. He wanted those people supporting his campaign. And that did not work out for him. He lost. He lost quite badly in 1964. Richard Nixon made a deal with Southern segregationists to get the nomination in 68, developed the Southern strategy, and that helped him narrowly win in 1968. And there are a lot of things, if they'd gone a different way, would have led to Nixon losing. It was a very narrow win. So we know this is nothing new. And we also now know, if you read the book, think about it this way, that the challenge is not a simple one, and that you just stop Trump, that there, this is a deep-rooted problem in American society. Sometimes it's been fought back and countered. Other times it hasn't. But I think if you have a fuller understanding of this, it allows you a better chance of coming up with strategies now that have a greater degree of success.
0: The forecast of 538, that website, predicted most candidates who think 2020 was rigged are probably going to win in November. Do you think that these candidates actually believe or that they just made a deal? Do you think that they believe that the election was stolen at this point? Or is it like what you're saying?
1: I think it's a blend. I think some do. I think some don't. I think some are saying this purely out of a cynical, calculating, Transactionalism, so they can get Donald Trump's endorsement and appeal to the base.
0: You think about um, Congressman Dan Crenshaw on the 2020 election lie, and he essentially says, "Thinking of bait, um, it was a bait and switch. It was always kind of a lie." Listen to what he said. It was always a lie. The whole thing was always a lie, and it was a lie meant to rile people up. And uh, you know, I've talked about this ad nauseum. It really made me angry because I'm like. The promises you're making that you're going to that you're going to challenge the Electoral College and overturn the election. There's not even a process for you to do that. It doesn't even exist. <laughs> I am mean, like, I also was like, what the hell are we doing? And I would tell that to people kind of behind closed doors, too, especially a lot of the rabble rousers, like like the political um, personalities, not even the politicians. We definitely had the arguments behind closed doors in the Republican Party before that. But even just the, the others like, yeah, we know that. But we just, you know, people just need their last, they're like their last hurrah, like they just need to feel like we fought one last time.
1: I think others are QAnonish, And if you believe that, you believe, you know, the election was stolen, you don't need facts. Doug Mastriano, who's running for governor in Pennsylvania, is tied into Christian Nationalist. He's been friendly with the QAnon forces. So yeah, I think he believes it. And you ask, where's the evidence? And either they make it up or they don't have any. I don't think that bothers him. Does Dr. Oz really believe the election was stolen? Yeah, probably not. I don't think he's really a Trumpy Republican, but I think he is a guy who's a huckster. Mm-hmm. He'd sell miracle magic beans on his shows, so he doesn't mind lying to people to advance his own interests.
0: And his fans are conditioned to believe it, which is also part of the problem.
1: Exactly. I mean, the problem that we face, the real problem that we face is not, of course, Donald Trump. He's just one guy. It's the fact that tens of millions of Americans buy what he says and are susceptible to his con game, to the short con and the long con. And so they believe that Democrats are pedophiles. They believe that Joe Biden is working with Antifa and communist radicals and anarchists to destroy your suburbs. Joe Biden, they either believe that he's a maniacal, diabolical grand schemer or... He's a doddering old man who can't tie his own shoes. doesn't really matter. The logic here doesn't matter. I call the book American Psychosis because there's a degree of irrationality driving this that, again, is not new. In 1964, the wonderful Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Richard Hofstetter wrote a very influential essay that became part of a book called The Paranoid Style of Politics. And he said that America has long had this paranoid stream, paranoid current, in its politics. And you can trace it back to the early 1800s, throughout the 1800s, throughout the 1900s, even before McCarthyism. There was the anti Illuminati movement, the anti Masonic movement. And in fact, there was a lot of anti Catholicism in the late 1800s, early 1900s, it was basically bat crap conspiracy theorizing, um, in which they said the Pope was raising troops that would go through a tunnel under the ocean to come over and take control of America. And it was Republicans and the Klan who were making that case. You know, that was the center of anti catholicism bigotry. So it's always, always been there. It didn't start with McCarthyism. It didn't start with Trump. We've seen irrationality, paranoia, unease, which is sometimes exacerbated in times of either economic or demographic change. And you have scoundrel politicians who have figured out how to exploit it for their own interests.
0: You mentioned 1964 just a moment ago, and you open your book at the 1964 Republican Convention, where Nelson Rockefeller, who you describe as the symbol of American dynastic power and wealth, receiving a pretty heated reception because he dared to challenge the arch-conservative Barry Goldwater. Why did you start there?
1: To me, it was like it was another mob. It was different than the mob that attacked the Capitol, but it was a mob. This was the 1964 Republican Convention. The essence of the primary contest that year was Nelson Rockefeller, the governor of New York, who was considered a liberal moderate Republican running against Barry Goldwater, who was the hero of this new rising, burgeoning conservative movement. Very far right. He had talked about Getting rid of a lot of government programs, getting rid of welfare programs, even engaging the Soviet Union in nuclear war if that was necessary to beat back the threat of communism. Very hard and fast libertarian. And so it was a pretty hard-fought ideological contest. And Goldwater won the primary in California, which was the thing that gave him the nomination, in part by mobilizing John Birch Society. And other like-minded, very far-right extremist outfits who canvassed for him and volunteered for him and raised a lot of money for him. And throughout the campaign, Nelson Rockefeller and his allies were denouncing the influx of crazy, paranoid extremists like the Birchers, who believed there was a commie not just in every government office, but in every PTA, in every union, in every church in every school library. The influx of these people into the party was something that a lot of moderate or non-right Republicans were very scared and angry and upset and concerned about. So at the convention, where Goldwater clearly had the upper hand and was going to get the nomination, Rockefeller and a few other moderate Republicans were pushing a resolution to add to the party platform, denouncing the Communist Party, the KKK, and the John Birch Society. It is essential that this convention repudiate, here and now, any doctrine. Any doctrinaire militant
0: minority, whether Communist, Ku Klux Klan, or Bircher. I want to back up for a second and I want to have you describe the John Birch Society. Who are they and how do they become so influential?
1: The John Birch Society was started in the late 50s by a guy named Robert Welch, who was a candy manufacturer, somewhat responsible for sugar babies, sugar daddies, and all those sort of things. But now he was he was retired and he believed that everything was a communist plot. He believed that Eisenhower. The president was a communist agent. fluoridation, weather satellite, anything happening in any university, that every Democrat, that the communists had secret control of the United States virtually everywhere. And they were in league with the UN and were about to take over the United States overtly. And he started the John Birch Society. It's named after a missionary who was killed, I believe, in China at the start of the Cold War. And like QAnon, He spread this conspiracy theory. He did it with film strips, not videos and tweets. And he opened up John Birch bookstores. And he found tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of adherents to his complete nuttery. And they became a very dynamic, energizing force within this new, growing conservative movement. And some in the conservative movement and some within the Republican Party wanted to disavow them and distance themselves from these lunatics. And Goldwater did not. He wanted them on his side. He even plotted with William F. Buckley Jr. to not denounce the Birchers in the early 60s. Eventually, they criticized Welch for claiming that Eisenhower was a communist agent. That was going too far. But they lauded and praised the Birchers themselves. It wasn't until the mid-60s that Buckley said enough of this and denounced the whole group. So back to the 1964 convention, Rockefeller comes out with some other moderate Republicans and wants to distance the party from the KKK, Communist Party, and the Birchers. And the crowd, the audience, the delegates, and the hangers-on at the convention at the Cow Palace outside of San Francisco go berserk. They hoot. And how Rockefeller, they throw things at him. It looks like they're going to rush the podium to beat him up. They try to shout him down. You can't denounce these extremist forces. No, you cannot. And he got very combative. He thought people were trying to pull him off the stage. It was a really, really ugly moment. And I think an example of mob mentality, the Republican Party embracing, you know, not the KKK and the Communist Party. But the John Birch Society. And of course, the resolution was voted down. And warning of the extremist threat, its danger to the party. Amendments, we must proceed in an orderly manner. I think yeah, it's yeah. only it's only fair and right to all concern. It's danger to the party and it's danger to the nation. The methods. Of these extremist elements, I have experienced that firsthand. Right. Rockefeller and the others lost, and the next night, after that display, which a lot of Republicans were upset with because it looked like their party was in the grips, you know, under the control of far right, crazy extremists, Barry Goldwater goes out there. And says extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. So he's there endorsing the idea of extremism. And that's the message that goes out. And his own advisors are shaking their heads at that point. Why do this? The display that I think really put off a lot of the American public. You are now owning this. That was an instance when he calculated that overtly embracing extremism was a good thing. My book shows. That in years after that, embrace of extremism was often not as overt or as explicit, but it was still always there because the Republicans wanted to keep what they used to call the kooks as part of their coalition.
0: So from the 50s into the 90s, the American right had communism to point to as the big monster under the bed waiting to basically destroy everything America stood for. It's been more than 30 years now since the USSR broke apart. How did the right keep scaring people into siding with it when the Iron Curtain
1: collapsed? That's a great question. And you know, the right used the threat of communism to not just say the Democrats were weak, that they weren't fighting it strongly enough, but they were an internal subversive enemy. They were in league with the communists. They were communist dupes. They didn't understand the threat. They weren't true patriotic Americans. They were more concerned with civil rights or the Vietnam War in the 60s. And so there was always this two-part component. One was just being scared of the evil Soviets overseas, but the other was decrying liberals and progressives as either being dupes or in league with this force. So when the Soviet Union went poof, And it was clear it was not the same type of threat, even if whatever threat it might have been in the past. They still hung on to the first part of that equation, and they tried to portray and depict progressives, Democrats as not being real Americans and as being a threat to America. I mean, it kind of started in the late 70s, even with the rise of the new right and the religious right, which they claim that progressives and Democrats working with gay people wanted to destroy the America, they destroy Christianity. We're talking about Jerry Falwell and the Moral Majority and others. This was their line. Not that the other side was wrong, but they were an enemy. They were an internal enemy force. They were motivated by Satan. Sometimes I they say they're actually working with Satan, and that they were a threat to you, the American family, to the Christian church. Need an example of what that battle looks like even now? Perhaps you've seen this viral clip of Tennessee pastor and January the 6th attendee,
0: Greg Locke, this week. I'm to the place right now, if you vote Democrat, I don't even want you around this church. You can get out. You can get out, you demon. You can get out, you baby butchering election thief.
1: You cannot be a Christian and vote Democrat in this nation. I don't care how mad that makes you. You get pissed off as you want to. You cannot be a Christian and vote Democrat in this nation. They are God denying demons that butcher babies and hate this nation. And that's kind of started happening throughout the 70s. Newt Gingrich, you know, you talk about the 90s and the end of the Soviet Union, the rise of Rush Limbaugh, which happened in the late 80s, paralleled Newt Gingrich coming to Congress. The two of them started pushing this line again that progressives are not wrong, but evil. And they're trying to destroy America. And they will destroy America if you let them do it. Gingrich went after Bill Clinton, said that he was not a normal American, that Democrats were not normal people, and even put out a list of words that he wanted Republicans to use when talking about Democrats. And the words were traitor, betrayal, anti-child, anti-country, radical, crazy, bizarre, all these terms that demonize, and dehumanize the opposition. Not that they're wrong, again, but that there's something demonic, evil about them, and that you have to see them not as a political opposition, but as a existential threat. And that continues through the next couple decades. You saw it with Sarah Palin in 2008. She calls Obama a pal of terrorists, and at her rallies, people are screaming, traitor. Kill him, communist. And again, Obama is the other. He's part of a secret Muslim socialist force born outside of the United States and Kenya. He's not even a real American. He is the internal enemy. And the Tea Party, after Obama wins, embraces this. And you see every night on Fox News, Glenn Beck, who's the ex official leader of the Tea Party, saying that Barack Obama wants to destroy America so he can become a dictatorship. He's going to put up concentration camps. He has death panels. And the point of my book is not just there are right-wing kooks out there or even that they're getting attention on platforms like Fox News. It's how the Republican Party encouraged and exploited this. So while Glenn Beck is putting forward this conspiracy theory, John Boehner, Sarah Palin, A number of Republican senators are appearing on his show, and they're basically validating and authenticating what he's saying. And of course, John Boehner wants to use the Tea Party to have the Republicans take control of the House so he can become House Speaker, which is indeed what happens. So he never gets out there and says, birtherism is crazy. This Tea Party stuff is nuts. No, he basically says, well, I understand Americans have a lot of concern. So he's exploiting and encouraging it.
0: I want to pause for a second and just ask if there was any time during this timeline that you've laid out so clearly in your book that there was a push from within the GOP and the American right in general against this movement towards total extremism.
1: It's a really good question. I mean, we talked about what happened in 64. When Ronald Reagan ran for president, a lot of Republicans thought he was maybe not extreme, but too far conservative and too close to the fringe, and George H.W. Bush did, and he ran against them in the primaries and lost. Here's an interesting story. Here's an interesting way of looking at this. In 2000, George W. Bush ran for president as a compassionate conservative. He was trying to distance himself from the Newt Gingrich Republicans who um, lost all the policy fights to Bill Clinton in the 90s, and then soiled themselves with the impeachment effort against Clinton, which most of America did not like. So he ran as a conservative, compassionate fellow who was not a red meat thrower. He even said that his party was sometimes too much tied to the doom and gloom of the right, and that even members of the Congress, Republican members, were not caring enough about the poor. Now, he was very conservative in a lot of ways, abortion and and religious matters that showed that he was personally conservative. But he tried to make it seem like he was not part of the extreme animating a lot of the Republican Party. And that helped him win some early primaries. Then in New Hampshire, John McCain, running as a very independent, maverick-minded Republican, cleaned his clock. And it looked like the whole Bush campaign, which was supposed to be inevitable, might collapse. So the next big primary was in South Carolina. Bush went down there, and what did he do? He gave a speech at Bob Jones University, a place where you still could not date interracially or marry, and also was very anti-Catholic, calling the Catholic Church and the Pope forces of Satanism. So it was really far-right fundamentalist extremism. If I'd have been invited to go to Bob Jones University, sure I'd have gone. (laughs) And I'd have told him, get out of the 16th century and into the 21st century what you're doing is racist and cruel instead instead governor bush there and never went there and never said a word i would never ever do such a thing he went down there and when people challenged him about doing this he refused to apologize and in south carolina he mobilized the far right christian coalition to put out all sorts of nasty, smearing rumors about John McCain, about fathering a black child. He had a child who had been adopted from Bangladesh, about his wife being involved with drug dealers, about him being brainwashed in Vietnam. It was one of the sleaziest, dirtiest campaigns up to that point in time. So when George W. Bush tried to distance himself from the far right, and it seemed to work he was fine with that but when he needed those extremists he ran to them and he won in south carolina and it gave him the boost he needed to push back the threat from john mccain so even when the party the leader of the party wanted to take a step away he got drawn back in and of course we saw john mccain himself who in 2000 is talking about how the party has separated itself from jerry Fowell in the christian coalition and being attacked for that in 2008 he's supporting them and saying that they've you know, all made friends. And then he ends up picking Sarah Palin to be vice president, his running mate. And that really sets off what will become the Tea Party explosion. So you have instances where there have been people within the party who have tried to push back against its reliance and relationship with far-right extremism and conspiracy theory and all sorts of nuttiness that is an essential part of the Republican Party coalition.
0: Okay, so all of this leads us to Trump and the GOP as it stands today. It always cracks me up that they still call themselves the party of Lincoln. What do you think Lincoln would say to that? Would Lincoln agree?
1: I'm not as witty as Lincoln was, so I'm sure he would have had some, you know, witty way to uh, to describe what, what had happened to the party. His party was not just a party that ended up ending slavery it was good on the racial issue of the day, it was also a party that was dedicated to progressive economics. It wanted to build infrastructure. Back then, it was bays and canals. It wanted to increase public education, land-grant colleges, and it really was dedicated to coming up with government programs that would expand economic opportunity, mainly for white men, because that's the that's one who could take advantage of at the time, but for the middle and low-middle class while Republicans, excuse me, well, Democrats and, and others who are being more laissez faireish and sometimes more attuned to the needs of business.
0: I think the most important question now, and I'm really interested to hear your insight because it's very daunting for me to even think about, and that's how do we in this day and age with social media, misinformation and disinformation, how do we get out from under this? And do you think that there's anyone left in the GOP with integrity and the popularity right, to fix it? Are there any John McCains left in America?
1: No, and as we saw, John McCain wasn't John McCain. I don't see it seems the party has been fully taken over by Trump and turned into a cult of personality where the most important pressing policy matter for the party is what does Trump want? And if the House Republicans win control of the House in the coming election, my guess is that their agenda will be dominated by Trump's thirst for revenge and retribution. They will impeach everybody they can, including President, Vice President, Merrick Garland at the Justice Department, Secretary of Homeland Security. They're just going to go after everybody.
0: The prospect of impeachment. Well, we may want to listen to what Republicans are saying they're planning. I don't know how Kamala Harris doesn't get impeached if the Republicans take over the House.
1: Last Friday, Ralph Norman from South Carolina and I filed a resolution, including
0: impeachment articles for Secretary Blinken. It is time for action. Impeach Biden. Impeach Kamala Harris. And throw in the Secretary of State if you could get him back from vacation. These are articles of impeachment on President Biden. You know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. I said at the time when we have a Democratic president, and a Republican House, you can expect an impeachment proceeding. I'm introducing the articles of impeachment on Merrick Garland. The House of Representatives needs to impeach Merrick Garland, and they need to impeach Alejandro Mayorkas, the Secretary of Homeland Security, and we need to have trials in the United States Senate on their abuse of power. you expect in an impeachment vote against President Biden if Republicans take over the House? I believe there's a lot of pressure on Republicans to have that vote, to put that that legislation forward and to have that vote. I think that is uh, something that some folks are considering.
1: Wow. They're going to have hearings on the FBI and the Russian investigation again. They may go back to Benghazi and Hillary in the emails, because this is what Trump wants them to do.
0: But it's like, I, I can't figure out which is a worse thought, that they actually believe this or that they've made a deal with the devil and are going along with all of these situations in order to gain back control. And then for what? What is the end game? Is it just like whiteness? Is it power? Is it money?
1: Well, I mean, the end game is power. You know, for some of them it's to pursue an agenda like that. For some, it's just to be empowered. And you talk about whether they believe or whether to deal with the devil. I think in a lot of cases, it's a combination. Often when you make a deal with the devil, you know that it's the right thing to do or that it's, you know, justified. And sometimes, you know, it's not when you go through with it anyway. There are very few people in life who go through life thinking they're not a good person, right? They all think that they're doing what they think is the best, at least the best for them. So I think that with the Republican Party now, it's almost a goner in a lot of ways. There, there is no countervailing force within it. Ron DeSantis is looking to emulate Trump and inherit the Trumpian mantle, not to supplant it with a new type of Republicanism. Republicanism equals Trumpism.
0: And then the true patriots that are fighting for democracy, like Kinzinger and Liz
1: Cheney. are not Republicans anymore. party has said, you're not welcome here. Literally. They tossed Liz Cheney out and they deride Kinzinger and all the others. The very few um, who take this position, Rusty Bowers, the head of the Arizona House of Representatives. Everybody who stood up has basically been thrown out if there was another Republican alternative. Brian Kemp in Georgia may not be tossed out because he's running against Stacey Abrams, and he might keep the Republicans on his side for that.
0: So what do we do, David?
1: 20 to 30% of the public is totally based and centered in this Trump cultish political project. And they cannot be convinced otherwise. They believe January 6th was Antifa. They believe Barack Obama was born in Kenya. They believe the election was stolen. They believe that Trump gave us this fantastic economy in the middle of COVID. I don't know. They can't be won over by persuasion, by saying, look at our policies. We passed an infrastructure bill. Strategically, the way to think about this is somewhat a bit like the Cold War. You need a containment strategy to keep that group of Americans as small and as contained as possible, and basically mobilize the rest of the country, which means getting a lot of the folks in the middle who don't think about politics a lot, who may not be where you are, perspective-wise, to understand the threat at hand, and to try to get them mobilized, more active, politically, and figuring out how to reach them. And it may not be reaching them with a democracy argument. Maybe may be reaching them with other economic issues and other things. I think you can peel a little bit off the edges of Trump's coalition. People who voted for Obama, who voted for Trump, might be susceptible to some form of persuasion. But I think it's a small slice. But really, you got to figure out how to engage the unengaged. And that requires some degree, I think, of savvy and bold because the unengaged are often unengaged. They're not watching, they're not paying attention, they don't care enough, they're motivated by other things.
0: And let me also today make a broader statement to millions of Americans who put their trust in Donald Trump. In these hearings so far, you've heard from more than a dozen Republicans who've told you what actually happened in the weeks before January 6th. You will hear from more in the hearings to come. Several of them served Donald Trump and his administration, others in his campaign. Others have been conservative Republicans for their entire careers. It can be difficult to accept that President Trump abused your trust, that he deceived you. Many will invent excuses to ignore that fact. But that is a fact. I wish it weren't true, but it is. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I yield back.
1: They have other concerns or worries in their life. In this world of ours, which is cluttered, With information and impressions and messages from shoe commercials to PBS broadcasting to Mother Jones to the National Review, whatever, to your podcast and the 27 million other podcasts out there. Trying to figure out how to reach people in this ecosystem is the trick.
0: But how do we reach that? Do you think a containment strategy, as you say, is possible when we're living through social media algorithms and living in our silos?
1: I think it's hard, and I think you know what it means is that the people who are who see this as a threat, who are on the pro-democracy side, you need maybe to widen their silos, open their silos, and look for ways to connect with those people who are not fully engaged. And the people who are in the Trump silos, don't worry about them. Seriously, I think your ROI, return on investment, is really going to not be large if you try to focus on them. There are just a lot of other, there are tens of millions of other Americans who don't vote or go back and forth or in the mushy middle, and they may not be there because they're ideological moderates. They may be there because they have conflicting notions. I've seen a lot of focus groups where people say, I don't really like abortion, but then again, I don't really like telling people what to do. But then again, I really don't like abortion, and I maybe we shouldn't have it. And so people like that are susceptible to messages from either side, right? The right message from either side can win over that person. They can be pulled one way or the other. Democrats have to figure out how to speak to and how to reach those people and cut through all the crap out there. It's not easy. It is easy to throw up your hands and say with social media and the internet and everything else out there on Fox News. We can't do this. Maybe we can't, and maybe things are going to go get worse and go south in a bad way. In the 1850s, they couldn't figure out how to resolve some of the fundamental differences in this country, and 700,000 Americans lost their lives because of that. I'm not predicting that's going to happen now. I don't think feel of failure or frustration should get in the way. The only chance we have is to try to build this bulwark against the Forces that lean towards authoritarianism, or autocracy, you want to call it fascism, whatever you want to call it. But that means maybe having a wider lens and thinking more carefully about messaging that gets the people who are not quite as concerned as you and I might be. And finally, what gives you hope? I got two kick-ass daughters in their 20s who give me a lot of hope, and that, that helps. What gives me hope? Melissa, is math. Math. There are more of us than there are of them. The numbers show that. The polling, you look at gun safety or big lie, you know, economic justice, progressive taxation. The most every issue, not every, but most every issue, the numbers are with us, as are the numbers of Americans who don't want to overturn an election by having a violent mob attack the Capitol. Okay. I'd rather have our numbers than their numbers. Then you got to figure out how to mobilize and call that into work. While there are some structural impediments, the Senate with two senators from every state, gerrymandering, suppression bills get in the way of a majority uh, implementing its will. But still, it's better to have a majority than not. So it's basically, if we get our shit together, I think, you know, there's enough. People who aren't part of the cult don't want America to become an authoritarian nation. And that's um, that's a good thing.
0: Well, David Korn, you give me hope. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the
1: podcast. Thank you for having me. I want voters
0: to stop and ask themselves, would we trust somebody who is stirring up these violent feelings, who is pointing fingers, scapegoating, making a joke about a violent attack on Paul Pelosi? Why would you trust that person to have power over you, your family, your business, your community? This is a real threat to the heart of our democracy. how much more can our poor nation take? How much more bad faith exploitation from the people we entrust with the reins of power will it take to undo our democracy? Why is power for power's sake more important than doing the job for the common good? There are so few Republicans left in office who are willing to do the right thing for the country, even if it's the wrong thing for their reelection. To be clear, I don't agree with many of their positions, but Liz Cheney, Lisa Murkowski, and Adam Kinzinger have demonstrated that they are among those few. It's hard to name many more. If that doesn't scare the hell out of you, then you need to pay attention a lot more. Or care a lot more about our nation. We can't govern from the extreme edges. That's true on the left and the right. The difference is that we very rarely elect people from the extreme on the left, despite how the GOP tries to define us. We need people to represent us in government who actually represent us. By definition, that's not the extremes. We've just finished a midterm election, and we're already talking about the 2024 general election. I hope and pray that it's not too late to write the ship. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Buliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry Not Sorry.